Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk O'Bear. And I'm Kirk O'Bear. Got a really interesting story and I'm going to go back into the uh, past to kind of go through what happened in this particular case. It comes out of uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And just go back a little bit. Uh, there was a 1994 killing of a 25-year-old by the name of Marcus Boyd in an alleged drug dispute, apparently over $40. And Lamar Johnson was one of two people that were convicted in this case. And basically what happened was uh, he received a life sentence while the other suspect, Phil Campbell, pleaded guilty to a reduced charge and only got a seven-year prison term. Even back at the time of the case, uh, Mr. Johnson claimed that he was with his girlfriend miles away when Boyd was killed. And apparently that alibi, as it were, didn't work, or it was refuted in some way at the trial. And this Phil Campbell fellow was... Uh, the witness that testified against Johnson. Um, apparently there was a, some corroboration that, that was part of that. Um, but since that time, that witness recanted his identification and said he was wrong. And two other men completely confessed to the killing and said, that Lamar Johnson wasn't involved, and that Campbell wasn't involved either. <laughs> so this is one of those situations where, you know, for whatever reason, Phil Campbell um, is facing a serious charge. He's worried about whether he can prevail. Turns out he didn't do anything. But he was faced with that awful decision about what do you do if you're worried about getting a conviction for a murder. And he was given a sweet deal to serve only seven years, and he took it, even though um, he didn't do it. As part of getting his seven-year sentence instead of life, he had to cooperate with the prosecutors and basically name this guy, Lamar Johnson, as being involved because that's what the prosecutors wanted him to do in order to get his reduced term. So you can see that the seeds are sown here for, uh, you know, a, a very bad situation. And it's only through unusual luck that uh, there was a recantation and two more confessions from other people that said that they were, in fact, the the killers. So... Let's talk about that a little bit, because this does happen um, a lot, actually. And when prosecutors are confronted with uh, this new evidence, something that could have made a difference going back to the trial, they tend to uh, dig in and be entrenched in supporting the validity of the original conviction. We have to combine this with another procedural problem that exists in our system, and that is that when appellate courts are reviewing lower courts' findings, there are limitations on what they can do, mostly looking at constitutional 
issues, violations of one's rights, prosecutorial misconduct, um, other aspects of the case that can be alleged to have gone wrong. But interestingly enough, in most state court systems, the the idea that the acute the convicted defendant didn't actually commit the crime isn't something that appellate courts normally look at. Um, and there, there's a reason for that. It's not a very good reason, but it's just because appellate courts are supposed to respect and not disturb factual findings. Because, as you probably know, appellate courts kind of exist in... I mean, there are courtrooms for some of these appellate courts, depending on whether or not they accept or permit oral arguments, but there aren't trials. Trials do not happen in appellate courts. It's basically appellate judges that review the law. It's very paperwork intensive, but not a whole lot of courtroom stuff. And again, the only thing that happens in court in an appellate court, whether it's a court of appeals or a Supreme Court, is a... uh, review of the evidence and some questioning of the lawyers involved just on the legal issues so there's no retrial of the facts courts courts of appeals don't do that so the other thing that happens that kind of creates this problem is that there's this rule about newly discovered evidence that is problematic And this is one of those rules, one of these standards that's out there just because the alternative is untenable and difficult. And what I mean by that is that in order for someone to get a new trial or to be able to try and get their conviction reversed based on evidence that's discovered after the fact of a conviction, there are a series of hurdles that that defendant has to jump in order to even get a day in court. One of which is whether that evidence could have been discovered or was known, but there was a strategic decision not to use it. And in this case, clearly that that's not the case. There was no knowledge that later on there would be a recantation of the identification and two confessions by two other people. So you're probably wondering, well, if it's that clear, if you have that obvious evidence that supports Lamar Johnson's um, constant claims over the years that he was innocent and wasn't even there, why wouldn't you just be able to go in and say, oops, uh, conviction reversed, sorry about that. Um, You spent 40 years in in prison, gee, sorry. Um, No, it, it doesn't work that way because, again, there's this fear that anyone could come up with anything at a later point in time and upset the balance, the integrity of that process. You know, I've talked about this many times on the show, but this is kind of a blind faith in the fact that juries always get it right. And oftentimes, you know, I've, I've done trials where I, in the process of selecting a jury, I ask about issues like this. Does anybody think that if you get it wrong here today that somebody else will fix the problem down the road? And a lot of people, you know, they hear about convictions being reversed. They hear about the fact that somebody was able at a later point in time to prove their innocence. I mean, we all know the Stephen Avery story, how that did happen for his first trial anyway. And there are jurors that believe if 
that's the case, the person later on will be found innocent. And it, and it kind of takes away from the obligation that a juror would have at the outset to try and get it right. So, you know, I often have discussions with potential jurors about that issue. And I'm kind of surprised sometimes that people think, yeah, well, you know, if we don't get it right, somebody else will. And statistically speaking, that almost never happens, which is why we're talking about this story, because it's kind of big news. It, it doesn't happen very often, even in the light of uh, evidence that's new. So I told you before that one of the hurdles is that you'd have to show that this was something that you couldn't have known, even with due diligence, couldn't have figured out. But then there's another level to this, which is even if... Um, the defense didn't know about these facts and now have them, and let's say they're reliable enough, we have the issue of whether it would have made a difference. <laughs> so you can imagine, again, uh, these appellate courts and the prosecutors who really, really want the original conviction to stand because, again, it's a matter of faith in our system. And we hear arguments all the time on these issues that okay, so, yeah, these two other guys confessed to the crime, but they've got nothing to lose. They're not going to get punished. They're, they can't be prosecuted because we've already got one person convicted of this. So how are we going to handle that in, in front of a jury? And as is often the case, the people that confess to having killed somebody are already serving lengthy sentences for something else. So these are people that have nothing to lose by saying, oh, yeah, it was me. It wasn't that guy. He had nothing to do with it. So there's often doubt in what the prosecutors are perceiving in these situations. Like, oh, sure, well, they confess, but we don't believe them type thing. And this whole issue about the identification being wrong, well, there's a natural argument. A lot of time has gone by. Maybe he's wrong now, but he was right then type thing, you know? So it's time for a break, and we will be right back after these messages. Back in November of last year, I reported on a case, another case, where somebody had been freed. Um, that was the case of Kevin Strickland, whose case, interestingly enough, was out of Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and that's another individual that spent more than 40 years behind bars for a triple murder. And in that case, the prosecutor, if you recall me telling you this, Gene Peters Baker, um, led the charge to get him freed. Now, in interestingly, we have these two cases with two prosecutors that are trying to set the record straight, and they're butting their heads up against other prosecutors who don't want these people to be set free. So... Very recently, of course, in uh, November, we had this other case where kind of a similar situation where the prosecutor herself that was in charge of that um, prosecutor's office made the move to free somebody that she believed was in fact innocent. And this is a, a controversy that's been brewing in... Missouri in particular, but it's a good example of things that are kind of happening all over the country and it's in different forms and in different at different paces. The law is trying to catch up with 
things we know now about how often and how easy it is for an innocent person to be convicted of a crime that they didn't commit. So in the case we're talking about of Lamar Johnson, uh, the top prosecutor in St. Louis um, is, her name is uh, Kim Gardner. She's been in the news because she has, she was involved in the freeing of Kevin Strickland as well. But the point being that she had filed a motion asking the judge to vacate Lamar Johnson's conviction. Um, and this was, well, more than 30 years ago, actually about 30 years ago, not 40. And um, she hit some resistance. Um, in fact, back in 2019, the same prosecutor, Kim Gardner, had asked for a new trial in that case. And the attorney general of the state of Missouri uh, argued that Gardner, as the district attorney, lacked authority to make a request so many years after the case was adjudicated. That actually went all the way up to the Supreme Court in Missouri. And believe it or not, they agreed with the attorney general who was trying to, well, who successfully blocked a new trial, even though it was in the interest of justice, even though that uh, it's very clear that this person should either get a new trial or simply be freed, um, you know, would lead one to believe that, uh, he sh that that's the proper outcome. And what they were arguing was basically technicalities, saying, well, that was a long time ago. Why did you wait this long? There's no procedural mechanism recognized by the law <clears throat> where someone can get a new trial under these circumstances, which is technically true. So what happened was, um, after that ruling in March of 2021 in Missouri, there was a law that became effective in August of 2021. So partly as a result of the Supreme Court saying that, oh, we don't have no authority. Yeah, you might be right. He might be wrongfully convicted. But what are we supposed to do about it? And, you know, here's, a, here's an example of how um, people who care about the integrity of the system can actually do something. So a law was passed, and this was sponsored by a state senator and other lawmakers who proposed the law with input from prosecutors, defense lawyers, law enforcement officers, representatives from groups that work to free prisoners, such as the Innocence Project and others. And they got the attention of state lawmakers who actually agreed that the law needs to be changed, and they changed it. So that gave Kim Gardner um, the opportunity to ask again. And lo and behold, uh, let's flash forward to, uh, it was earlier this week. I'm just trying to find the, the date here. But there was a hearing that was held on Tuesday, earlier this week, that overturned the conviction of Lamar Johnson. Um, I'll just read from the article here. Lamar Johnson, 50 years old, closed his eyes and shook his head slightly as a member of his legal team patted him on the back. When Circuit Judge Dave Mason issued his ruling, in coming to a decision, Mason explained that there 
had to be reliable evidence of actual innocence, evidence so reliable that it actually passes the standard of clear and convincing, which he found did exist here. So he was let free from the courtroom. Um, Again, the state attorney general's office had been fighting to keep Johnson locked up. Um, They have now stated that they will take no further action in the case, but did defend their position to try and keep Johnson behind bars. Um, In a written statement, they... To the press, they stated that the Attorney General is committed to enforcing the laws as written. Our office defended the rule of law and worked to uphold the original verdict that a jury of Johnson's peers deemed to be appropriate based on facts presented at trial. Interesting that you can see here what's going on. This is like lawyers behaving badly because it's as if everybody in the room can agree that there's something wrong here and it's practically impossible as a logical or factual matter to say that Johnson committed this crime, but because a jury found him guilty, we have to do everything within our power to make sure that that stays exactly as it is. Um, Crazy, crazy, absolutely crazy. So, and then, you know, as we've seen time and time again, when appellate courts uh, get these types of issues and they're being opposed simply because a jury's verdict from 30 years ago should should not be disturbed because he had his trial and he lost, okay? He was found guilty at trial. So, legally, he is guilty. doesn't matter what actually happened. So, we see these kinds of arguments come up and it's, it's almost ludicrous that not only do prosecutors make these arguments, but that they're supported in the uh, appellate courts. So what happened when this law passed in August of 2021? Now, here we are now in February of 2023, and it took an effort starting in 2019 to get this man freed by a prosecutor's office who was at war basically with their own attorney general's office who did not want their um, prosecutors, you know, on the trial level making these kinds of motions and fought against it. So just think about how how strange that is. You know, a prosecutor says, hey, this was wrong for conviction. I think he should be get a new trial at least and probably just released, have his conviction reversed. Me, the prosecutor from the office that prosecuted him, that's what we would like to do. The attorney general, who supervises the prosecution throughout the, uh, the whole state, says, no, you can't do that. We disagree. And then, so, it takes all this time for a law to pass that gives prosecutors in Missouri more authority, more ability to make these types of motions and requests of uh, the courts. And, yep, you guessed it, the attorney general in that state still opposed it, still fought against it, still said that it shouldn't happen. And it took um, years just just happened this week where the appellate court was able to, based on this new law, um, take into account more than what was originally within the scope of that appellate court's authority. Um, so, k- kind of like, this is almost like the tail wagging the dog that we have in these types of situations. 
And it's very, very frustrating when you hit, you have an appellate court that rules. You might be right. You're probably right. But the problem is we're just an appellate court, and that's not the kind of thing we review. And historically, the reasons for this go back to long, long before we really had any sense of how often people are wrongfully convicted. I mean, these are appellate rules that have been in place for decades and decades. And the reason that these procedures and rules, as it were, come into existence is a lot of times just based on efficiency and an overwhelming attempt to justify jury verdicts that have happened in the past. All right, we have to take a break, but we'll be right back. You're probably sick of hearing me talk about the concept of qualified immunity and what that means and how it's really kind of an an odd little piece of law that affects when government officials are performing their duties. And one way of describing that is that when somebody does something under color of law, what we say, either as a law enforcement officer or as a prosecutor or some other government entity. And if it turns out that they did something wrong, whether negligent, reckless, or even intentional, uh, there is this barrier to liability. And it kind of makes sense because we view prosecutors and people that act in an official role as public servants, people that are, you know, serving at the will of the people. And oftentimes the job is difficult as well as complicated and can result in the possibility of, uh, you know, incorrect decisions being made. So in other words, it's recognized that there is imprecision. And this applies again to cops in the field, prosecutors that make charging decisions, the evidence they produce at trial and things like that. And qualified immunity means that anybody who is involved in that process who who gets it wrong uh, is not subject to financial liability as regular citizens would be if they did something that was intentionally or recklessly wrong. So look at just a civilian person who's not involved with any government entity and they do something that causes either financial, reputational harm, or, or other harm to a person, there is, that's what we have civil liability for, both as a way to make a victim of that type of action, quote-unquote, whole, again, to the extent that they can, and also to deter that type of conduct from others. Like, you know, you're not going to go out and and use your power over somebody in a way that hurts them if you know that there is the risk of getting sued for that, right? It's one of those uh, basic principles that we in society have adopted as a fundamental um, aspect of how uh, we conduct ourselves. So, you know, the risk of being sued for doing something wrong is ever-present, And it sounds kind of weird that everybody sues everybody for money all over the place when they think somebody else has done something wrong. But, again, it's one of those ways to try and deter wrongful conduct, harmful conduct, things that hurt other people, right? 
So if I get hit over the head with a baseball bat by somebody and I got to go to the hospital and spend six months in a coma, well, I shouldn't have to pay for that if I didn't do anything wrong. The person who should is the person who hit me with the bat. That's the idea. And it would probably, in a theoretical world, be an incentive not to hit somebody over the head with a bat if you know that you might get stuck with you know, not only the hospital bills, but pain and suffering and punitive damages and all kinds of other stuff. So as a deterrent against uh, wrongful or uncareful or reckless conduct, that's one of the things that regular citizens face all the time. But when it's a, a government agency who's conducting that type of, is engaged in that type of conduct, there's this shield of immunity. Now, it's qualified immunity because if somebody steps out of their role and does something that is not within the confines of their official duties, in other words, they're abandoning their official role and doing something personal, well, then that person can face civil liability. But, you know, and, and the example we see all the time is a law enforcement officer who is uh, dealing with the stressful situation and they're trying to arrest somebody and the officer ends up, you know, I mean, we had a case just like this not too long ago where the officer thinks he's grabbing his, I think it was a woman, thinks she's grabbing her taser, but she's actually grabbing her weapon. She thinks she's deploying the taser, but she's actually shooting, you know, around from her nine millimeter sidearm into the suspect and killing him. Um, so was she performing her official duties? Yes. Did, did something happen where she stepped out of that role? Yes and no, in the sense that if it was a pure mistake, well, that could still be within the realm of qualified immunity. But let's say a different example, not that case, but let's say somebody did that because they were mad, like a cop gets mad. And they say, you know, forget this guy. I'm just going to waste him right now. Takes out a gun and just murders somebody. That's stepping outside of the scope of the duties and responsibilities of that officer. You can clearly see why that would be something that someone would not get qualified immunity in that situation. So transfer that over to prosecutors and the decisions they made. And there is an argument that by insisting that somebody who by all accounts and by all reasonable application of logic, is innocent. You, as a prosecutor, are still trying to ensure that the person doesn't get set free. Would that be something where that prosecutor should be subject to, uh, you know, an exception from qualified immunity, performing duty out, you know, doing something that's outside the scope of what their duties are? You might think yes. But the answer is no. And especially when you get into the legal world, and this is one thing that's always bothered me about our justice system, is that there are facts in a case, but we have to use that word with a a small f, facts. Because how facts are, you know, basically created or memorialized for later presentation at trial is a very subjective process. There's a lot of effort and I'll say on both sides, frankly, to have facts portrayed a certain way. And there are arguments that come from the brains of lawyers in court as to how they're trying to fashion a particular theory and, and how what does this particular fact mean? And you heard this witness say such and such. So that means 
this and that. <clears throat> and it comes down to, you know, I guess skill or acumen or something where the uh, perception of what those facts mean or how reliable they are. And in every single case, 100% of all cases that have ever happened, what comes out in court is not exactly what happened. Um, it's almost impossible for that to be the case. I'm not criticizing that part of the process. It's just that, as I always say, we are human beings that have limitations on what we are capable of doing when it comes to testifying, remembering things, whether or not there's bias that we're aware of or not aware of. You've heard the concept of confirmation bias. You know what that means? That if you are uh, believing that you already have a sense of what the outcome is and you then add a layer of fact on top of that, the facts appear to support your belief. And again, there's nothing wrong with that because we all have confirmation bias in some ways. It's not meant to be a, a pejorative uh, description of that, but it's reality. So, you know, we're dealing with a, such an imperfect process. And for some reason, because we haven't found a better way to do it, we believe that by both sides in a controversy such as this, fighting over what the facts are and what they mean is the best way, I suppose, to solve these riddles of whether somebody's guilty of something or not. And another layer of protection, if you want to call it that, against wrongful convictions is to bring in this jury of peers that have no experience or predisposition about the case and are presented evidence in such a way that the presiding judge will ensure that there is, that's done fairly in a non-prejudicial way, that it guides the jury to make a hopefully proper decision and so on. So you can see a lot of moving parts in this whole process. And then when there is a conviction and that's it, you know, the, the fear that society as a whole has in that situation is that if you can't trust the verdict, you, you really can't trust anything in our society because innocent people are not supposed to get convicted in the United States of America. Why? Because we're supposed to have the best justice system in the world, the fairest, the one with the most rights for defendants that are charged with something, and including the presumption of innocence, including proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So you have all these layers and we tell ourselves that this is a robust system. And it's because of that, or at least our desire to think that, that it's very difficult to admit when something has gone wrong. Because it's scary. It's really scary to think that juries get it wrong all the time. Because what does that mean for you and I or anybody else that's just living in this society? It means you, any given day you could be accused of something and end up serving a lengthy sentence even though you followed the law and you were a good citizen, which is scary. All right, time for a break. We'll be right back. I know you're probably going to chuckle to yourself as I'm going to go back and do a little history lesson here because I tend to do that. You know, I, I go down some path <laughs> that appears to be completely unconnected, unrelated uh, to the topic we're discussing. But believe it or not, I'm going to talk about the Articles of Confederation. Um, that was the predecessor to our Constitution. 
And it, you'll see, it does have something to do with this topic when, when I get there. But first, uh, take my hand and walk down the path with me. So, if you remember what went wrong with the Articles of Confederation, the, the original uh, document, as it were, that uh, established the United States of America and the system of government that worked. And, and by the way, it was fairly short-lived because it simply did not work. And the rationale behind how government was supposed to be structured at that time was a deliberately um, fashioned, weak federal government so that the federal government had little to no power whatsoever and had basically no role other than to say, hey, you know, we're the United States, but the states do everything that the states want uh, with no oversight, no no sort of actual structure behind any of it. And in a, in a very short period of time, it resulted in economic chaos, um, huge problems in our country, a, a complete lack of any semblance of standards anywhere. And it really, you know, the, our idea that we would have a, a number of states that what we originally envisioned would be like little individual countries that just basically ran themselves without a need for this big, large, overarching federal government. So in other words, when we talk about supremacy of the federal government, that was a concept that didn't exist back then. And it's natural that uh, there was a fear that doing so would resemble the monarchy that we had just worked so hard to free ourselves from to have one power in charge of all the smaller powers and that the states are subservient in some way to the federal government. So that was that got scrapped. And then we came up with the Constitution. And as we all know, the Constitution greatly enhanced the power of the federal government to give it actual roles, actual jobs, actual things to do. And part of that was in the interest of preserving this concept of union. Well, we all know that not too long after that, we had a big struggle in our country about what that even means. But uh, putting that aside, um, we had this concept of separation of powers. There are certain things that the federal government does, but everything else gets left to the states. And that's based on the fact that certain aspects of life, the culture, the, even the laws that are that guide sort of like the personality or the individuality of that locale, that state, should be preserved. And, and the states do have um, the right and the obligation to make laws that conform to their societal standards. However, if it runs afoul of something that is protected by federal laws or federal jurisdiction because it is a right that all American citizens must be guaranteed to enjoy, such as um, the right to free speech, the right to assemble, the right to possess a firearm, well, a weapon or a an arm, <laughs> the right to possess an arm, uh, or the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. So, so by having these laws that apply across the land, it places, it's in, and they reserve and guarantee these rights for citizens because they're American, because they're United States citizens. 
Everything else that's not specifically enumerated or mentioned somewhere in the Constitution is reserved for the states. So then, over the years, we see this development of um, you know, the federal uh, jurisdiction expanding into different areas on the premise, usually because of what we call the Commerce Clause in the Constitution, that if something affects the commerce of the nation as a whole, it can be deemed to be something within federal interest. So it, there's a lot of criticism of that concept because when you start using vague terms like the commerce of the nation, whatever that means, and again, that the Commerce Clause exists because of the failure of the Articles of Confederation in uh, you know, protecting any sort of national uh, economic interest. You know, if there's no, there was no currency standard, there was no, you know, money didn't mean anything, you know, for many years there. So part of this Commerce Clause is that if the federal government believes in their wisdom that the lawmakers of Congress can justify a particular law in the sense that it has the potential to impact the overall economic health of the entire nation, you can make those laws. And a lot of stuff gets slipped into that category, you know. And the, again, it's been controversial for many, many, many years as to whether or not that's truly something that is in the nation's best interest, or is it just the fact that big businesses um, with national or international presence can benefit from laws being made that help them. That's a little cynical, but it might also be true. I don't know. So getting back to this issue about <clears throat> whether we as American citizens should be protected from arbitrary results because our freedoms are important. And there is no well, I'll, I'll have a caveat to this in just a second, but there is no federal law that ensures innocent people uh, who have been wrongfully convicted can get a new trial or can, can be released. That's just basically deemed none of their business. And as a result of that, each state has its own set of procedures and standards for what an appellate court will review. And that's that's probably a good thing. But the point is that you could be accused of a crime in Missouri and have one particular set of odds of being found not guilty or being having your wrongful conviction reversed. But if you committed that crime in Ohio or was accused of committing that crime in Ohio, you could have a completely different result because of their different procedures. And if the ultimate issue is the integrity of the system that affects our freedom, you know, freedom is fundamental right? The, to be free is tremendously important in this country, not just in a philosophical sense, but in a true sense of being free, to go about your business, to do what you want to do, to have your privacy, to live your life, to go out and seek your fortune, or to take a nap on Sunday when you get home from church or whatever. It's all up to you because you are part of this great American society. But depending on where you live, you could be subject to different levels of risk based on uh, the arbitrariness and variations in the arbitrariness of how the system responds to allegations of misconduct. 
So Lamar Johnson, who had to endure 30 years of sitting in a prison cell for a crime that he didn't even slightly commit. I mean, he's not even close to being 1% guilty. He is 0% guilty. And by the time he got freed, everybody knew that for about at least five years, but probably more, that this was just plain wrong. And the court system in Missouri said, yeah, okay, but what are we supposed to do? And what I'm saying here is that when it rises to that level of something that is, uh, you know, dangerous for our society to have these rules that interfere with the right outcome, isn't there, um, you know, a need for some kind of federal standard on this? Now, I said there was a caveat, and that is because there are recognized actions, one of which is um, a habeas corpus petition in federal court based on a state law violation. In other words, if the state isn't following its own rules. So you have to point out that, hey, this is what the court ruled, but that's contrary to what that same court ruled in a, in a historically, and they just did it wrong, and it resulted in this person being incarcerated forever. Well, very few of those habeas corpus petitions are ever granted. And it's it's very limited because, again, the federal government is not supposed to interfere with whatever the states are doing unless it rises to the level of um, violating some a constitutional right. And in that case, habeas corpus, meaning corpus, the body, uh, the per- that you're saying that a person is uh, not free, they're confined. And that's how you get into court on those types of issues. And you have to say it's a this person's actual fundamental freedom is being violated because the state did something wrong under their own rules. That's it. That's the only real way that you have to get, you know, for any kind of uniformity, which even then it's not uniform. All right. I've been talking long enough and it's time for us to wrap up the show. Please tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5. This has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.